once again to Maple Grove Covenant Church. My name's Chad. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to extend a very special welcome to you as we continue our series entitled The Shocking Statements of Jesus. Because Jesus said some pretty shocking words. Hate your parents. Love your enemies. Take up your cross. Last week we learned about the most shocking relationship, marriage. And this week Jesus teaches us about shocking compassion. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. The words are also going to be on the screen. I'm going to read the words to you, and then we'll have Pastor Steve Spear share in a little while. Let me just read these words to you from Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says some pretty shocking words. His disciples are asking him about what's it going to be like when he comes back. In fact, they're saying, who's going to enter into eternal bliss heaven and who's not? And Jesus says these shocking words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from the other, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his left and the goats on his right. And these are the ones that will enter into heaven. Therefore, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison to go to visit you? And Jesus said these words. The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did to the hurting and the hungry, you did for me. Jesus identified himself so closely with the hurting and the hungry that to minister to them is to minister to him. To love those he loves is to love him. To display compassion to those that are in need of clean water or of clothes or food is to minister to Jesus. And he continues. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And then Jesus will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do 
for me. And then Jesus said these shocking words to his disciples and to all of us this morning. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It's pretty shocking. Some hard sayings, some tough teachings of Jesus. But Jesus did not say these words to repel us, to shock us away from God like sticking your fork in an outlet. He did not say those words to repel us, but to shock us back to life. But the righteous to eternal life, the righteous will experience life both now and forever. Jesus said these words to all of us and to his disciples. If you show compassion to the hurting and the hungry, you will experience life now and forevermore. And that's why Jesus said these words. And this morning, we have a guest communicator, a former pastor at Willow Creek Church. He currently serves with World Vision, and he's been ignited with a cause of shocking compassion. And he's going to come and share his journey with us. But before Steve Spear shares his journey, I'd like to show you a quick clip of his journey running a very long, long way. Check out the clip. In 2007, I got roped into running my first marathon. I hate running. I only had four goals. To hate running less each time I ran, to train well enough to make it to the starting line, wanted to finish before they closed the course, and I wanted to raise $1,000 for clean water in Africa. I completed the marathon, and that was five years ago. So when people ask me, so why are you running a marathon this morning? Why are you running one tomorrow and one the day after that? Well, I tell them that I still want to hate running less each time I run, but this time it's different. I want to raise $1.5 million for clean water in Africa. And to do that by running 120 marathons from L.A. to New York so that 30,000 people in Kenya can have clean drinking water for life. So how did I go from running one marathon to now running across the entire length of America? It's definitely been a process. I started running about 30 miles each week. Now sometimes I'm running close to 130 miles per week, equal to that of elite runners. And there's definitely been some great training days in this, and there have been some ugly ones as well. The worst training day consisted of an 18-mile run in the morning, eight miles in the evening, and on that evening, when I was running that eight-miler, I feel for the first time I was running for water. I feel like I got a glimpse of what it must feel like for one billion people who don't have access to clean water. Children like our World Vision sponsored child, Winnie, She, like millions of other women and girls, travels six miles for water every single day. And you can't tell me that that's okay. I felt that on top of the physical and the emotional value that training provides in a person's life, for me, it was a personal calling. So I started with one marathon, and that one soon turned into three, and three to five, five into 30. Then there were some ultra marathons. I was gradually running more and more miles, and as the number of miles increased, so did the number of lives that were being affected. 
There are a billion people on the planet that don't have access to clean water. All they know is what it feels like to walk one mile after the next, one day after the next, every single day. So when people say, why are you running 120 marathons across America? My hope is to take some of the miles from Winnie and 30,000 people just like her and to bring them clean water instead. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Chad. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, it's really awesome uh, being here. Um, as a Chicagoan, uh, I feel like uh, even though we've had like our third snowiest winter on record, I feel like a winter wimp, like in the midst of you guys from Minnesota. I mean, you guys are like the colossal winter champions up here. So you inspire me. You inspire me. Uh, it's also uh, cool to be here as we like launch the Maple Grove Team World Vision Twin Cities Marathon team. And some of you already, from what Nick said earlier, and now when I've lost you, because I've used the word marathon and running in the same sentence, and you're like going, okay, I want nothing to do with any of this right now. And there's a bunch of you right now, there's a little voice going on inside of you that's saying, you can do it. You can run the marathon. You can run the half marathon. And there's another voice inside of you going, what are you nuts? Are you crazy? There's no way you can run a marathon. And I just want to have you still that second voice for a little while. 80% uh, of our runners last year were first-time marathoners, 80%. And the life change that happens uh, both in your lives and the lives of people around the world is pretty remarkable. But you can kind of put all of that on pause uh, for the next few moments. And I just want to tell you a little of the story uh, from L.A. to New York. Uh, this uh, first slide that I want to put up for you is how the run began and how the run ended. It started almost uh, a year ago, April 8th, at Santa Monica Pier at the Pacific Ocean, and it ended 150 days later on September 6th at Battery Park overlooking the Statue of Liberty. And this is how I wanted to start and end the run, uh, by simply being before the Father and saying, uh, this whole thing is yours, and I'm yours, God. Do with it as you will. And one of the things that folks get a little interested in are just some of the statistics uh, from the run itself. So let me just kind of rattle off a few of these. Uh, the run was 3,081 miles long, not that I was counting. Uh, covered uh, 14 states. I ran on average 35 miles a day, five days a week. I went through 10 pair of ASIC running shoes, consumed on average 5,000 calories a day. We figured that I ate 1,000 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches mid-run. Uh, there were over 300 different media placements uh, that covered newspaper, magazine, radio, and TV. Highest sustained elevation, 7,500 feet above sea level uh, running uh, through Arizona. Uh, greatest aggregate elevation change in the Allegheny Mountains in Pennsylvania. One week of running was 175 miles, 32,000 feet of aggregate elevation change. So if you're ever looking for good hill work, uh, go to the Allegheny Mountains. Uh, toughest week. Uh, a home state of Illinois, of all places, last July. Uh, in order to make up some time, I got hit with a flu uh, when I was running through Oklahoma, and we needed to get to Chicago on time for some fundraising uh, events that we had set up. So I ran 180 miles uh, in one week in July. It was the equivalent of seven marathons in seven days, and five of the seven days, the heat index was 115 plus. It was a rough week, I can tell you that. Uh, scariest moment, I was attacked by six wild dogs in Oklahoma. 
And finally, the most uh, fulfilling, uh, to date, $425,000 has been raised uh, through this effort uh, thus far for clean water in Africa. And as many of you know, yeah, it's a... That is a total yay God kind of a deal. And as many of you know, all it takes is $50 to provide clean water, sanitation, and hygiene for one person for life. 50 bucks is all it takes. So when you take that number translated, 8,500 people, 8,500 people now have clean water and hope for life. Now, uh, one thing to be really clear about here, I am like the most unlikely guy to have run across the United States. I ran my first Chicago Marathon, you saw it in the video, I ran my first Chicago Marathon with Team World Vision in 2007, and my number one goal was to hate running less each time I ran, and it pretty much still is. Um, I mean, I thought that first marathon was a one-and-out deal until I found myself standing in front of our church congregation in 2008, inviting a bunch of them to run the Chicago Marathon. Uh, Fast forward to May 2010, and I'm standing in Peter Maritzburg, South Africa, gripped with complete fear, complete fear and a little excitement, uh, ready to run the 56-mile Comrades Ultramarathon. Six months later, uh, a whisper from God came for me to run across the United States for the good of others. And for the next 18 months that followed that whisper, for reasons primarily associated with fear, I tried to suppress that whisper, like keeping a beach ball under the surface of the water. But it kept popping up again and again and again, until I came to the point of surrender almost two years ago to the day today, and I said, God, have your way. I'm yours. I sense your calling for me to devote myself more to running and how running changes lives for the least of these. And if the expression of that calling is a run from L.A. to New York, filled with more unknowns that I can count, then I'm in. I don't get it, God, but I'm in. Now, in the midst of the training and all the preparations for the run, I asked God for a passage of Scripture, one that would carry me. I knew what Chad just read from us from Matthew 25. That was a sustaining portion of Scripture, but I was sensing that I needed something that would help augment that, and one that would keep me challenged, one that would encourage me, one that would keep me on point. And the Spirit of God led me to Hebrews chapter 11. And the portions of that chapter are now inextricably linked to every fiber of my life. I mean, and it shouldn't surprise me that God led me to this chapter. After all, it's called the faith chapter of the Scriptures. But I was in for the ride of my life on how it would be expressed. Now Hebrews 1, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. I'm here to say and to remind us that we serve a God who specializes in making the invisible visible. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. We serve a God who specializes in making the invisible visible. I mean, consider the universe and creation in all its splendor. The innumerable amount of stars, the constellations, the solar systems, the planets. And then here on earth, its mountains, its oceans, its rivers, its forests, its rolling hills. The mystery of the deserts, the design of plant life, wildlife, and human life. It was at one point invisible. 
And then God took that which was invisible and he made it visible. And Hebrews 11 lists instance after instance after instance of how God takes that which is invisible and made it visible. From Noah to Abraham to Moses to Gideon to David, seas that were parted, walls that fell, mouths of lions shut, flames quenched, those dead returned to life. And I love how the writer of Hebrews almost summarizes it in verse 34 by saying, whose weakness was turned to strength. Whose weakness was turned to strength. Anyone here feeling weak today? Anyone feeling inadequate? Anyone feeling like the task is too daunting, a hill too steep, a challenge too overwhelming, the odds stacked too much against you? Well, if you answered yes to any of those questions, I've got two things to tell you. One, you're not alone. And two, you're in good company. For you have a friend in Hebrews chapter 11, and the brothers and sisters listed here, for they all felt these things as we do. I certainly know our family did. We felt them in spades, thinking of this whole L.A. to New York deal. With the prospects of resigning my stable position, of releasing our home, my wife selling the business that she had built for 10 years, training for something that very few in American history had ever accomplished, to raise living support, to raise even more money for clean water, sort out how we would live while crossing the U.S., wondering if my body would hold up, raising up a crew, answering the questions... What if I don't make it? What do we do when we're done? And unknown after unknown after unknown. I felt weak. I felt inadequate. I felt like the task was too daunting. The hill was too steep. The challenge was too overwhelming. The odds were too stacked against us. And then God reminded me. And he reminded me again and again that he is a God who specializes in taking that which is invisible and making it visible. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then God afforded us a front row seat, invited us to bring to him our fears, our insecurities, and then he said, watch me, just watch me. And guys, I'm telling you, I could keep you here until five o'clock this afternoon and tell you story after story after story about how God made the invisible visible. But I won't. (laughs) But I will give you just a few. Six weeks before we were to leave Chicago and begin driving an RV uh, to L.A. to start the run, we had one small problem. We didn't have an RV. As you can imagine, six weeks before the start of the run, this was producing a little stress. Our family and friends had already purchased tickets to go to L.A. Tons of plans were in place, but the runner didn't have a ride. Uh, For months, Uh, We had put out the need of an RV to manufacturers, to supporters, to car dealers, to friends, yet nothing had surfaced. And then one afternoon, a friend of the vision texted me, and he said, do you have a few minutes to talk tonight by phone? And I said, sure. Called him that evening, and he said, hey, just wanted to let you know, Abby, that's his wife, his name is Chad, he said, Abby and I have been talking about uh, this whole thing that you're going to be doing, and we want to let you know um, that we would like to purchase a 39-foot diesel RV for you and your family to do this vision. And I'm like going, you'd want to do what? (laughs) And I said, man, people don't do that. And he said, people aren't doing the kinds of things that you want to do. And yes, this is our gift. So friends, uh, this is how we traveled the United States. And uh, that's our little car behind. It looks like a peanut behind the RV. 
And Hebrews 11 talks about Noah. It says, in holy fear, Noah built an ark to save his family. And I'm not Noah, but that was our ark. That saved us. That sustained us as we made our way across the United States. And the RV was just one physical aspect of God making the invisible visible. I mean, there were shoes, there was gear, nutritional supplements, professional training, top-notch medical care. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And it weren't only things that God made visible, but there were people. Now, we estimate that I covered about 90% of the 3,100 miles solo. There were a, a lot of alone time. I mean, I cannot uh, tell you how many times I'm running and I'm looking in the horizon like, you know, half a mile, you know, more than that down the road. And I'm running along and I'm seeing something on the side of the road. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm running, that's a person. They're going to talk to me and we're going to have community and this is going to be good. And I run and I get closer to him going, oh, it's just a sign. <laughs> it wasn't a person. And, you know, I'm like going, it was so I was talking to horses and to cows. I mean, I'm talking to anything that would give me any kind of love back. And horses and cows will give you love back if you talk to them long enough. But there were people that God would send at just the right time uh, to carry my burden uh, when I could like offload a little suffering to them. So here's just a few of the folks. Uh, this guy's name is Russ. Uh, Russ uh, came out and spent a week with us on the run. And he, he, he ran a portion of every day through the desert. Um, I will never forget that. I will never forget him sharing my burden as I ran through the desert. Um, I know about uh, any of you that have done some running before, running in the driving rain can be just wearisome. Uh, only one day of the entire 150 were all 35 miles in the driving rain. This was the day. I'm in Oklahoma and the driving rain at mile 10 of that day's run. This girl named Katie Russell, a Team World Vision runner from Oklahoma City, shows up on the run route spontaneously and runs with me. She clocks 15 miles with me in the driving rain. And it just lifted me. It carried me as I made my way uh, through the day of that run. Uh, this guy's name is Tim Starr. Uh, Tim is one of the senior vice presidents with World Vision US. He drove 10 hours round trip in Ohio and found me on the run route. And he clocked 25 miles with me that day. And we've heard the verse from scripture that says that we carry one another's burdens. And not only do we carry the burdens of those, the least of these, as we live out Jesus' shocking words of compassion, but we also carry one another's burdens as well. This guy carried my burden. These folks carried my burden in a way that I'll never forget. I could viscerally feel it every time they come out and run with me. Um, this next picture uh, brings up... Uh, a whole lot of emotion. This is my wife, Frances. And this is day four of that week in July where I did seven marathons in seven days and five of the seven days the heat index was 115 plus. This is after day four. And guys, when I finished this day of the run, I, this is the end of 35 miles and I was, I was done. Completely out of gas, dejected, disappointed, frustrated, everything. And I just like sat in this chair at the end of the run and I said, babe, I'm done. I cannot do this. I cannot get up another day and do this. And she sat with me as only a, a loving wife could and a good friend would, and she didn't say anything. She just held my hand. And then after like what seemed to be quite a long time of her just kind of commiserating with my suffering, she said, I think God will provide some strength that you're not even aware of. And uh, gratefully, after a bunch of Bob Evans mashed potatoes stocked in my stomach that night and more chicken breast than you can think of, I mean, God was gracious and provided strength for the next day. Uh, of the run. When I made it to Chicago, 
uh, I fell into this guy's arms. This is Michael Chitwood. Michael's the national director for Team World Vision. And uh, I almost felt like when I got to Chicago, I made it to New York. I hadn't, but I collapsed into his arms after that week of crazy running. And uh, he just kind of held me, and I said, man, uh, thanks for being a friend. Uh, he ran with me into uh, our suburb that we live in in the uh, Chicago area, and 400 people met me as we came into that and just cheered on this cause. And it, it wasn't only people who showed up on the run route that would um, buoy my spirits. It wasn't only people that came to run that would you know, help make uh, God's invisible nature visible, but it was people in the fundraising efforts as well. Uh, this guy, his name is Larry. I met Larry in Quapaw, Oklahoma. I was at mile 21 of that day's run, and about every five to seven miles, my crew would stop me. They'd throw out a chair. I'd sit down for a few moments. They'd fill up my water bottle. I'd take on a few PB&Js. And I'm at mile 21, and I'm at the corner of this, uh, like, lot in Quapaw, Oklahoma, with my feet propped up on the tailgate of the car. And this dude drives by in his pickup truck, and he says, just looks at me as I'm sitting there, stops his pickup truck, and he goes, hey, that's a really funny way to change a flat tire. And I'm like, right, you know, I don't need you to mess with me right now. And... And I said, I'm not changing a flat. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I I'm running. And he goes, okay, wh where are you running to? And I said, you're not going to believe me if I told you. And he said, well, try me. And I said, New York. I'm in Coapa, Oklahoma. I said, New York. He goes, I don't believe you. <laughs> so we had to pull out like our, some of our you know, brochures and stuff that told people about the run. And I started telling him about Winnie, our seven-year-old sponsored child that lives in the western part of Kenya. I started talking to him about the least of these I started telling him about the fact that Winnie was the face of about 800 million people on the planet that don't have access to clean water, who walk upwards towards six miles every single day, carrying a five-gallon, 50-pound container of contaminated water. And I said, Larry, something broke inside of me and just said, it's not right. I've got to do something about this. And I said, so I'm running from L.A. to New York. I'm trying to raise a bunch of money. And he said, what can I do? I said, you can write a check. <laughs> and uh, he said, I will. And he said, my combine is a mile down the road, right on the road that you're running on. He said, I've got to go down and work on it. When you come by my combine, stop, and I'll write you a check. And I did. I ran right by his combine. I stopped, and I said, pay up. And uh, he did. He wrote me a check, and he said, I want to be a partner in this vision of what you're doing. That sustained me. That kept me moving. When we got to uh, Chicago, uh, as I left Chicago to head to New York, there's a little Starbucks in our hometown that did a little uh, sending off party for me as we left Chicago to go to New York. Some people showed up to do that, and uh, they were you know, exchanging hugs and well wishes. And, and uh, these two young kids with their mom came, and you can see that I'm holding two little, two little of those M&M canisters. And the mom brought these uh, with her kids, and the, each one of these two kids had filled them with quarters. Each canister held 25 bucks in quarters. And the mom said, my kids wanted to make sure that they supported one person for life with water. So here's our gift to the run, two canisters filled with quarters. And I mean, that just made my day. I mean, that was awesome that they would do something like this. And as I was getting ready to leave, uh, to take off, there was a dude standing off kind of, you know, inconspicuously to the side. And just as I was getting ready to go, he um, said, hey, Steve, just a minute before you go, uh, my wife and I wanted to make a contribution uh, to what you're doing with this whole thing. And I said, oh, man, that's great. Thank you. And he hands me a check. And I opened it, and it was a check for $6,500. 
And I'm like going, whoa, this is, this is awesome. Thank you very much. And he said, we just wanted to let you know we want to be a partner in this vision of what you're doing. And he said, my wife and I, I've already talked about this. Figured you might need a little incentive to make it to New York. Uh, before the end of the run, I'll, I'll match the gift if you make it. <laughs> and so three days before the end of the run, I think he thought maybe we'd make it. He put through another gift for $6,500 uh, for clean water. These kinds of things just absolutely buoyed us. It made the invisible nature of God visible in a very tangible way. Uh, remember the couple who gave us the RV, uh, Chad and Abby? After they gave the RV, uh, I said to them, hey, guys, that is so awesome. I still can't believe you gave the RV but I think you need to do more. <laughs> they about clocked me. And I said, they said, what do you mean we need to do more? I said, I think you guys should run the Chicago Marathon. And they're like, are you crazy? And I'm like, no, I'm not crazy at all. I think they're going, we're not runners. We hate running. You think you hate running, Steve? We hate running worse. We will not run the Chicago Marathon. And I said, guys, I think you should kind of give this thing over to some prayer. I think you should listen to a still, small voice within you. And God might be calling you to something that is completely outside your comfort zone. And they did. Uh, and they decided to. Uh, this is Chad and Abby uh, at the end of the Chicago Marathon last October, ran their first marathon. Between the two of them, they lost 100 pounds collectively uh, training for the Chicago Marathon. They involved their kids. They involved their church. Chad stood up in his church, much like Nick did this morning, and said, will you run the Chicago Marathon with us? 30 people from their church said, we're in. They decided to run the Chicago Marathon. They raised $65,000 for clean water in Africa. Amazing what these guys did. Uh, very, very cool. And in October, Chad and Abby are going with me to Kenya to run the Nairobi Half Marathon, and they're going to raise even more money uh, for clean water in Africa. And how God does uh, these kinds of things. One final story uh, that I'll mention to you. When I crossed uh, into New Jersey... I was within days of finishing the run. And something supernatural, almost unexplainable, occurred. I got a late start that day on my 35-mile 35, 35 run, and it, I didn't get to start uh, time until 1 o'clock that day. So at about 6 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a gray sky. It's mile 25, and I started up a fairly sharp incline. Now, having just finished a brutal week running through the Allegheny Mountains, I was telling you about that before, um, where there's like 32,000 feet of aggregate elevation change, the last thing that I wanted was, was another two-mile climb. And my first thought was, why is there a mountain here? I'm in New Jersey. I mean, New Jersey's supposed to be flat, for goodness sakes. And then with each uphill step, I found myself just getting more and more irritated. And the irritation soon tuned to anger. I mean, I was angry at the stupid incline. I was angry at the ridiculous run that I was doing. I was angry for how crappy I felt, and I was angry at God. And that quiet road, friends, it heard some choice four-letter words from a very fatigued soul. And directly after my fit of anger, a sense of aloneness swept over me. And while I knew dozens, if not hundreds of people were holding me up in prayer, I felt alone and isolated like never before. And in the midst of this overwhelming feeling, I just put my head down and I put one uphill step in front of the other. A moment later, I lifted my head and I noticed a cyclist coming down the hill on my side of the road. And as the cyclist came closer to me, he didn't come off the shoulder in order to give me space to run. This added to my growing irritation. I mean, like, was this guy trying to play chicken with me? I mean, did he want me to stiff arm him off his bike? Because I would have. I would have. I was not in a good place. 
And uh, when he was about 20 yards from me, he stopped. And he said, are you Steve Spear? And I kind of responded, yes. <laughs> and then he said, you're the guy running across the United States for clean water in Africa, right? And I was like in complete disbelief. And I said, yes. And the next line out of his mouth floored me as if what he already said didn't. And he said, I just want to let you know, there's a group of about 10 people a mile up the road ready to cheer you on. We heard what you were doing, and we wanted to let you know, and he used these words, you are not alone. We believe in you. And with those words, guys, I was in complete spiritual shock. I was stunned. I was overwhelmed. I was blown away. And this angel of hope rode beside me, shared my burden, and about a mile up the road, there were 10 people ready to cheer me on and to rock my world. And these friends are what I call my New Jersey angels. I mean, we spent like the next 10 to 15 minutes greeting one another, hugging, laughing, sharing about our mutual faith in God. Because I had like 10 more miles to run, I didn't stay a long time. <laughs> but as I ran into that next mile, I marveled at the divine orchestration of the previous 45 minutes. Our faithful God met me in the midst of my broken spirit and my sense of aloneness. He knew that this son of his was in trouble, and he miraculously tapped a group of unknown strangers to surround him with their presence and remind him that he was not alone. Friends, we serve a God who makes the invisible visible. And I want to close by issuing something that all of you can partake in, most of you can partake in, and some of you can partake in. First of all, for all of you, I want to remind all of you that in the midst of whatever challenge you're facing today, wherever you're feeling inadequate, wherever the hill is too steep, the odds are too stacked against you, whether it's at home, in a relationship, in health, in family, finances, wherever it is in the midst of this thing, I want to remind you, you are not alone. You are not alone. Psalm 125 verses 1 and 2 say, For those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. You are not alone. And I also want to commend all of you for what you're doing to bring hope to our world. Chad was telling me earlier about 30-hour famine and what you as students have done to remind people in our world, children and families, they are not alone. For those of you that have already run with Team World Vision, those of you that are going to run, you see how optimistic I am, with Team World Vision, you're reminding people they are not alone. You see, God is using you beyond just those examples, but as a church to remind people he's using you to make his hope, his love, and his care visible. All of you, you are not alone. Now, you didn't think that you'd get a guy that ran across the United States and not give you a running challenge. So, for most of you, I think you can totally run the Twin Cities Half Marathon, which comes up later this year. 
You can totally do this. I'm fully convinced that 99% of every human being can run a half marathon. Completely convinced of that. And it could be even as Nick was talking earlier, and you've heard me talk, you're going, in that little voice that's saying you can do this, you should do this, it needs to outweigh the big, stronger voice that's going, you can't do this. I'm convinced most of you could run the half marathon. You could make a difference. You would see life change happen in your life and in the lives of others. Now, all of you, you're not alone. Most of you could run a half marathon. Some of you should run the full marathon. Some of you should. And I'm convinced that 99% of people can run a full marathon. Trust me, I have seen so many people. I I ran next to a 78-year-old lady at the New York Marathon last November with two canes going up the Queensboro Bridge. And I turned to her, and I just said, Ma'am, you are my rock star hero. And uh, she introduced me to her two granddaughters that were running beside her as she went up the Queensboro Bridge. And I'm going, guys, some of you need to run the, the Twin Cities Marathon. You need to just say, this is completely out of my comfort zone. It's completely filled with fear. But one of the things that I'm convinced of these days is God has for us some of the most richest, experience, richest experiences of our lives on the other side of fear. And what you will do, because I, mean, I love this, the shocking statements of Jesus. It's a shocking statement to stand up in front of a group of people and say, you should run a marathon. That's shocking. What's equally, equally as shocking is that you would say yes to it. And watch what would happen inside you, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. And why, why would you even consider such a thing for the least of these? For the least of these. That's why you would. So uh, one of the things, one of the stories that I love is uh, near the end of Mother Teresa's life, uh, in the midst of her ministry that she was doing in Calcutta, India, the massive leprosy community that she was seeking to serve, she was interviewed by a reporter. And the reporter asked her, uh, Mother Teresa, in the midst of this overwhelming need that's in front of you, how do you ever expect to be successful? And Mother Teresa just turned right to him and really didn't miss a beat. And she said, oh, God has never called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. That's what we're called to do, to be faithful. And you may discover, as I have, that it's not so much about the miles we cover or the speed in which we cover them, but rather that we stay moving one faithful step in front of the other, living our lives and doing our ministry so that our invisible God, invisible God becomes visible. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what you are being commended for. Thanks so much. You can just stay up here for a second. Just stay up here for a second. I'm going to ask Steve to pray for us in a minute, but remind you of Jesus' shocking words. Jesus said these words. He said, truly, I tell you, whatever you do not do for the least of these, you do not do for me. And then they will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. He's an example of life, a life of faith, a life of risk, a life of love a life of joy. And that's the life that Jesus has for each 
one of us. All of us are going through challenges. Some of us should run a marathon. Some should, most of us can run a half marathon. But all of us can enter into a life of compassion. In some way, we can care for the hurting and the hungry this week for Jesus' sake. Steve, would you please pray for us now? Now, Heavenly Father, it is, um, (laughs) it completely baffles me at times that you would uh, choose to use the likes of us, yet you do. Uh, You're so faithful, you're so good, you're so kind and compassionate. Thank you for the words of Jesus that always keep us on course and always keep us on track. God, thank you for these words that, you know, Chad has reminded us of and timeless words of Jesus that we would have our lives geared and focused on you and on who you love. And so, God, now I just pray for every individual that's in this space right now. God, I pray that you would bind whatever needs to be bound. God, repair, restore what needs to be restored. Heal where healing is needed. God, I pray for individuals who need to trust you. They've never really chosen to follow you yet with their lives fully to take their life and to turn it over into your hands. God, that might be the biggest step a person needs to take today, but to know that they're not alone, you're going to carry them. And God, for those who might be thinking about this crazy thing of running a race, God, as we hang out afterwards up here in the front, God, just just bring us up to just listen, to understand more. God, thank you for Chad. God, I thank you for the beacon of light that this church is in this area. God, I pray that you would unleash several dreams today, several things that would just allow the ministry of this church to absolutely catapult into this, into this region, God. Um, thank you for being a God who makes the invisible visible. And uh, thank you for how you want to use us, humble as we are before you, God. Shaking, but willing. We ask this prayer by faith in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.